Thanks, Sarah. That was awesome. Crew, how are we doing? Okay, sounds like week eight or nine in here. So, uh, well, shameless plug, two of them. One, go on summer mission. If you haven't heard about it, I don't know where you've been, but come. Um, come with us. Come, if you're like, I don't know anybody, you can come with me to Ocean City. We'll, uh, we'll be friends, and we'll spend the whole summer in Ocean City eating donuts, uh, Starbucks on the beach, all those kinds of things. We'll make memories together, okay? If the ideas of memories with me maybe aren't your thing, then maybe you go to Estonia. Go to the other side of the world. I won't be there. Um, one of the best things about Summer Mission, though, as you've heard, is that you get to uh, grow a lot. We do a lot of training about how to read the Bible, uh, how to learn more about God. You might read a book like this one entitled You Are a Theologian. Uh, this is a book that we're, um, we're going to start reading tomorrow morning. If you haven't heard about Doxa, uh, we meet at 8.30 a.m. at the 1979 coffee shop, which is here at the church. And we're starting this book starting tomorrow. And so uh, this is an awesome book. If you, whether you're a Christian or not, if you want to learn more about God, because as my friend Jen Wilkin says, if you're wondering, is he really friends with her? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am. Uh, as she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. You can't, your heart can't love a God it does not know with its mind. And so uh, we want to love God with our minds. And so their contention is you're already a theologian whether you know it or not. And so, um, so I'm curious, who, who's a freshman that's going to come to Doxa tomorrow? Okay. Oh, okay. Here it is. You get it then up top. Is everyone okay? All right, Caleb, you're all right. Well, we're starting a new series called One Story. Excited to get into it. But before we get into it, um, I want you to imagine this scenario. Um, imagine someone says to you, that drip is gas. <laughs> now, where you are and who says it to you is going to determine how you understand that phrase. I mean, if Elena says that to you as you walk into crew, as she said to me tonight, and she said, Nick, that drip is gas. I knew she was talking about this drip. But if you're working on your car and something's dropping on your face and Elena says, that drip is gas, you're understanding that really different, right? Um, or perhaps maybe you're at crew you're at crew and you overhear someone say, that guy's on fire. Now, on the one hand, maybe there's a game of spike ball going on and you're just getting at that, like someone's just crushing it over there, like just racking up points. That guy is on fire. Um, or it could be in a social setting, like Randy Rosso is just like telling joke after dad joke after dad joke and you're like, that guy's on fire, like he's killing it. Or, maybe just prior to hearing that, you smell something burning and someone says, that guy's on fire. The, the context in which you hear things determines its meaning. And for many of us, in the same way, story determines how we live. Story determines our living. And whether you recognize it or not, story is how you make sense of the world around you. The story you believe that you are part of fuels the way that you live. It determines the choices you make 
It fuels the things that you do, and it even interprets, it's how you interpret the things that have happened to you. It's all through the lens of story. And so our world and our culture offers several different stories to be a part of. Actually, Sarah named quite a few of them for us in her story. There's the story of narcissism or hedonism. It's the story that says you are at the center of everything. Everything's about you. In fact, one of the banners that has hung on UCCS's campus is, is says it's all about you. <laughs> it's supporting the story that everything is about you. Or there's the story of consumerism. The story that you are what you have. Your worth is based on the car that you drive, the house you have, the, the drip you got going on. It's all about what you have. Or there's the story of individualism, that, uh, that you are your feelings and your emotions. That's what you are. You need to be true to what is in you. The good life is being authentic to yourself. There's the story of rationalism, that whatever seems right to you must be right and true. Or there's the story of pragmatism, whatever works must be true and good. And there's so many more. Progressivism, relativism, secularisms, all these isms. All that to say, though, is that all of us live our lives through the lens of story. You have a, you have a way of interpreting the world around you, and it's through one of those stories. And so I wonder, what story is it that you believe you're part of? What you may not realize is that the Bible confronts and corrects these stories. It confronts them and corrects them, and it even offers a counter story. What you may not know is that the Bible, it is not one book. It's actually 66 different books. It's 66 books written by 40-some different authors over almost 2,000 years. And yet, this story, <laughs> it's not about you and me. It's actually about Jesus, the whole thing, from beginning to end. It's all about him. It's about him and his kingdom. And why I think this is important for us to talk about, it's this, and don't miss this, it's that if you don't know the true story, you'll live the wrong story. You'll live the wrong story. You'll have the wrong things fueling how you live, what you're choosing to live for, how you interpret everything around you. If you don't know the true story, you'll live into the wrong one. And so a guy by the name of Alistair McIntyre, he says this well. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story am I a part? Our lives, the questions, the events, the decisions, the relationships that fill it, they all take their meaning from within a narrative. And so in the same way that misunderstanding the context of that guy is on fire, if you misunderstand the context of how that's said, it will, you will misinterpret what's actually happening. And so for us, misunderstanding the true story that you're part of, it will cause you to live out of alignment with it. And so friends, the Bible invites you and me to live into the true story. 
God invites us not just to know it, but to actually live into it. And so he wants us to know what the story is, particularly so that we know what role we have in that story. But the only way to know what role you have is to know the story itself. And so that's where we're going to go for the next five weeks together. We're going to look at the entire story of the Bible, and we're going to see how it all points to Jesus and his kingdom, and then we're going to consider how do we live our lives in light of this story. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into what we have tonight. Father, thank you for every man and woman here. And God, I ask that you would speak through your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give every one of us whether we would call ourselves a Christ follower right now or not, would you give us eyes to see you? Would you give us ears to hear you? And would you give us hearts to treasure you, Jesus? And God, would you help us not just to know your story, but to live into it? Help us know what that means for us right here, right now, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where I want to go. Um, We're going to start big picture with the story of the Bible, and then we're going to start to zero in with the beginning of the story. So let me start big picture, the story of Scripture. Um, Let me show you this image here. This is a graphic of the Bible. And what this graphic is imaging is the beginning of the Bible, starting in Genesis, all the way to Revelation at the end. If you're wondering, what's that long line down the center? That's called Psalm 119. It's a long chapter. That's why it's long. Interestingly enough, it hits like right in the middle of the Bible. And what all these lines are, these are what's called cross-references. This is where the Bible references something else in the Bible. And so what you're actually seeing is 69,779 different cross-references of the Bible. This is why we say the Bible is one story. 66 books, 40 authors, almost 2,000 years, and there's all these connections between it. It's also why some of you who are, are like too scared to touch the Old Testament, you're missing out on a whole lot because it's connecting to so much in the new. And so When we think about the story of the Bible, let me show you this next graphic, we can kind of think about the story of the Bible in six different acts, like almost like a a play or a story. So six different acts. It starts with creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we hear about the creation story. In Act 2, we learn of the fall that takes place in Genesis 3. Starting, uh, and then through that, you start with Act 3, Act 4, and so on. And so this really is where we're going to go for the next several weeks, is this picture. I lost my graphic. Go, go give that back for me, Josh. But this is where we're going to go. Uh, six different acts over the next five weeks. And so um, I have the great task of taking you through the first three tonight. We're going to go quick. But we have a lot of ground to cover, but we, this is where we're going to go. So this is probably something you want to take a picture of or um, keep in your mind, doodle it down, something like that, because this is really the framework that we want to go. And this is actually a great way for you to know the story of the Bible. When you think about, when you open to any part of your Bible, that you could actually know, where am I at in the story? 
that would be awesome for you to know that. So, Act chapter 1. We're just going to dive right in. The story of the Bible starts with the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1-1, we're told there that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, every, every story seeks to answer this question, who am I? Who am I? And Genesis does something really clever. Before it answers that question of who am I, it begins by answering the question, who is God? Who is God? And so the Bible doesn't begin by talking about you or me. It talks about God because ultimately the story is all about him and not about us. And it tells us God is creator. He is the reason everything is. It's one of the most foundational philosophical questions. If you're an atheist, one of the questions you have to answer is why is there anything instead of nothing? It's a question all of us really have to answer. And we're told that God is creator. God is the reason there is anything. He is infinite. He's internal. He's unchanging. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God didn't create the world out of any sense of need. Like God wasn't lonely and he needed friends and that's why he created us. In fact, we're told that he created out of the overflow of his love, his perfection, his glory, his goodness, and he created everything from nothing. And that includes us. We're told later in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. One of the questions I talk to my son, my five-year-old boy, Lucas, one of the questions I ask him before bed very frequently is, how and why did God create us? And he responds, God created us male and female, in his own image, to glorify him. This is what's called a catechism question. It's a question, you're like, wow, that's a smart five-year-old. Yeah, he is smart. Uh, but this is a question and response thing. It's for him, he's re- what is he doing when he does that, when he answers that question? He's rehearsing the story. God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. That's who we are. That's why you and I are here. You are made in the image of God. You are like him in the way that nothing else in creation is. You have dignity, value, and worth purely on the fact that God made you in his image. And that's your purpose, is to glorify him. That's why you exist, to know him and to make much of him. And so, it's worth even for you to pause for a minute and ask, when you think about humanity, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think about how you would describe humanity? If you're like me, you think broken, or maybe you're like jacked up, those two words. But you're like, not, not great. But actually, What God says about humans, and this should be your first instinct about not only humanity, but about you too. The first instinct of the Bible towards humanity is that you and I were created very good. Very good. You are made in God's image. And so in God's original creation, everything was perfect, it was good, 
I mean, try to imagine for a moment what a world without sin would be like. You, you and I, we're, we're so immersed in the world of sin, we, we can't even imagine what it would be like. No suffering, no sickness, no death, everything perfect. But that, of course, brings us to the second act and the question that every story also has to answer, not just who am I, but the second question that every story has to answer is what's the problem? What's gone wrong? In Act 2, what the Bible tells us, beginning in Genesis 3, is that Adam and Eve, that they were given this mandate to reflect God, and instead what they chose to do was to rival God. They were called to reflect him, and they chose instead to rival him. And so it only takes until the third chapter of the Bible for everything to go wrong. Adam and Eve reject God. They fall into sinful rebellion. They listen to the serpent's lie. They reject his good design. They, determine that they, wanted to, they decide that they want to determine right and wrong for themselves, and they fall into sin. By Genesis 4, you have the first murder. Who did it? Adam and Eve's sons. One brother killing another brother. In Genesis 6, you find, we find that the people of the earth are described as being so wicked and so sinful that God decides to flood the earth to get rid of them all. Like right now, we're trying to get rid of a bunch of wasps at our house. We just got this trap and they're all just flying to it. We're just trying to wipe them out, get rid of them. And God realizes that things have gotten so bad, he has to do the same to humanity. Wipes them out, has to start all over again. We have to get rid of them all, start fresh. And then by Genesis 11, we find that even as he started fresh all over again, that the Genesis 11, the people, the new people of the earth, they've already built it, uh, they've already decided that they want to defy God's plans. They build this tower because they think if we build a big enough tower, we can go get God and like become him ourselves. And so... <laughs> Everything just goes terrible. Last weekend, Amy and I were speaking at another crew retreat, and the students there were asking this question to one another, what is sin? Like, what is it, really? And there's just a few things I just want to point out to you about it. One is that sin is not normal. Like, we think it's normal, but it's not it's not a reflection of what God intended for our world. He did not intend it for you and I. Sin's also rebellion. It's treason of, by a creature against the creator. We are defying the one who created us and what he designed us for and to do. But sin's also idolatry. It's not normal, it's rebellion, it's idolatry. It means that you and I, we were meant to serve and worship God, but we've chose to worship and serve created things instead of the creator God. And lastly, sin's an attempt to achieve autonomy. You know what that word autonomy actually means? Atos, namas. Those are Greek words. Atos, self. Namas, law. Autonomy is being a self-law. That's what sin is. I, don't, I determine what's right for me. I don't let God say what's right for me. I make that determination myself. We decide 
rather than living our lives under the God that we want to live our lives above him and we'll decide what's right and what's wrong. That's what sin is. And so Adam and Eve's sin, it plunged our world and us, and it's our sin too that's plunged the world into chaos and darkness. And even though there's still a whole lot of beauty and good in the world, everything's not as it should be. We find ourselves in a world that can be on one hand awesome and awful. And we live in that tension where we still have glimpses of all the good that God has placed in the world and yet we're surrounded by brokenness that can leave us speechless. I mean, we all feel this, don't we? You feel this? I mean, we can open up our phones, we can watch TikTok or YouTube videos, we can kind of distract ourselves into believing that everything's fine. And we can forget the fact that just a week or two ago, children were getting their heads cut off by terrorists. And women were being kidnapped and raped. And there are people in our city that are dying in hospitals. Not because anything particularly, but it's just, we use the phrase, it's natural. No, it's not. If it were natural, why does your heart scream? Why does it feel like this isn't how it should be? Sin. The fall. That's where the Bible starts. And that brings us to Act 3, Redemption Initiated. It introduces us to someone in the story named Abram, or sometimes he's called Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham. His name changes. Don't worry about it. But I want you to open up your Bibles, and I want to talk about his story for a moment here. So Genesis chapter 12. We're just going to look at a few verses here. Genesis 12. Redemption initiated. Here's what happens. The Lord, we're told there in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This, if you don't know, this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Uh, this is a like decisive moment because the rest of the Bible is really a fulfillment of this promise that God is making to Abraham right here. This is the point after creation and the fall, as everything is just going terrible, this is where God steps in and begins to initiate his redemption plan. Uh, this passage is what's frequently known as the Abrahamic covenant. In a covenant, there are several covenants throughout the Bible. This is one of the earlier ones. And the covenants 
really kind of form some of the backbone of the Bible story. They give it its shape and its form. And if you're wondering what a covenant is, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but perhaps a simple way to put it is a covenant is where God obligates himself to reverse the effects of sin and to, re- to re-Edenize the world. It's a promise. It's a promise that God makes and obligates himself to reverse the effects of sin and to re-Edenize the world. And so you can notice as you look in that passage, Genesis 12, notice how many times the phrase, I will, shows up. Don't look at me. Go look at, look at the verse. Look how many times it shows up. I, I will make you. I will show you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless. I will curse, right? It's, this is something God is going to do. God is the one who calls Abraham, and God is the one who's going to do the work. He's the one that's going to reverse the effects of sin. And so if you were to look at Genesis 3 through 11, those previous verses that were all about the fall, you would find the word curse show up five times. But right here in Genesis 12, what word do you see show up five times? Bless, bless, bless. And so this is God deliberately saying he is going to reverse the curse. And why does God choose Abraham? Well, we're not told why. In fact, this is something good for you just to know about the Bible. Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell you what you want to know, but it will always tell you what you need to know. And what you need to know is that God is going to reverse the curse and that he's going to do it through a guy named Abraham. And so, this covenant, this promise that God makes with him has three components to it. Three components. He promises Abraham land, a land that he will show him. He promises that he'll become a great nation. In order to become a great nation, you need a lot of people, meaning he's going to have the blessing and the promise of many descendants, a big, big family. So land, many descendants, and then the third promise is a blessing on Abraham that he will bless the world through Abraham. I'm blessing you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so, beyond those promises, though, Abraham is told a few things. He's told to leave his land, meaning he's being told to leave home. He's being told to leave his family. He's being told to leave his security. And in fact, he's not even told where he's going. God just says, leave, and I'll show you where you're going to go. Now, this is, a, <laughs> this is a radical call. I mean, even in 2023, uh, for us, like if God told us to leave everything, you could at least still FaceTime your family. Um, you could hop in an Uber and go wherever it is the Lord's leading you. But Abraham's told to pack up his pre-Uber, pre-FaceTime life and to hit, hit the road and go. And how does Abraham respond? Look at verse 4. How does Abraham respond? We're just told, 
So Abraham went, as the Lord told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Oh, and by the way, Abraham was 75 years old when he left for Haran. 75! This is your grandpa! Like, Papa, where are you going? God told me to go. Taking Lot with me. He's an old brother. 75 years old. You know what Abram's name means? Father. You know how many kids he had? Nothing. This is the one that God has called and he has chosen to bless the world through. This is the one who he's going to undo the curse of sin through. And he calls him to leave everything, and Abraham goes. And this is honestly, friends, this, don't miss this. This is one of the things that the Bible celebrates most about Abraham. It's his faith. We're told in Hebrews 11, and I'll just read it to you. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed. And he set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. You see, he went out even though he had no idea where he was going. Do you have that kind of faith? If you're a Christian, do you have the kind of faith where you would follow the Lord even when you don't know where you're going? I know most of you. And most of you don't like uncertainty. It makes you twitchy. You don't like it. And it's not just you, it's me too. We don't like not having a plan. If you're like, get in my car, I'm like, my first question is where we're going. And you're like, I'll show you. I'm like, I'm not going. <laughs> but God God does call us to follow him. And he, he calls us to go. But for a lot of us, you're not willing to go where he's calling you because you don't know where he's taking you. You're unsure where he, what he would do. You're unsure where he would leave you. You're unsure how it would affect the plan that you have for the next 10 or 20 years of your life. You see, this isn't the only time that Abraham believes God without knowing how it would play out. Go read the story about Abraham and his son Isaac. Can't talk about it tonight, but go read that one. He did not know how that was going to shake out. He doesn't negotiate with God. He doesn't question him. He doesn't try to pull an answer out of him. He believes God for who he is, and he just goes. And this is really the setup for the entire rest of the Bible. Through Abraham, God's going to reverse the curse of sin through Abraham. Now, I want to cheat real quick. And I want to fast forward to Jesus. You see, God promises land, people, and that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. And perhaps you're wondering, how the heck could that possibly happen? Well, when you open up to the book of Matthew... Here's the first thing that you'll see there in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. You see, Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the promised one. He's the fulfillment of the promise that God makes all the way back in Genesis 12. You see, the land that Abraham was promised was actually greater than just an earthly promised land. The land that Abraham was promised that would come to his people is a heavenly one. Jesus is the one who's going to take us back home to God. He's the one who's going to restore Eden to us in the new earth. And so how is it, you might ask, how are all of the families of the earth blessed through Abraham? Through Jesus. Through Christ. And so rather than eating the forbidden fruit from the tree, Jesus goes to a tree and he dies. Rather than rejecting the will of God, Jesus submits to the will of God and dies for our sins. He is the true and better Adam, the one that we needed. He's the true and better Abraham through which all of the earth is blessed through. He is the one. And so he reverses the curse of sin for you and I by living the life we should have lived and then dying the death that you and I deserve for our sin. He conquers death itself by rising from the dead and now by placing our faith in him, we're promised a new land. You're guaranteed a new land, heaven. We're adopted into the family of God. And through God and through us, we bring blessing to the world by proclaiming the good news of Jesus to it. If, if you might be, it's worth you actually thinking about this question. If you're a Christian, do you know where you stand in relation to Abraham? Galatians 3.7, Paul writes there, he says, those who have faith are sons of Abraham. If you have your faith in Christ, Paul in the scriptures would say, you are a son of Abraham. You're part of it. You're part of that Genesis 12 promise to bring blessing to the entire world. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great. I'm really glad that Abraham left his home and left his family and went to a place that he didn't know. But I haven't gotten that kind of call on my life. Like, that's kind of, the promise has been fulfilled, right? It's done. Nope. Actually, right at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus also gives a sending and a commissioning where he says to his disciples, he says, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples as sons of Abraham, and you and I as sons of Abraham, we are, you've already been called to go. God just said it 2,000-some years ago. Go. Make disciples. Tell the world about Jesus. That's how you bring blessing to the world. And so we leave, we go, even when we don't know where we're going at times. That's what we're called to. I want to tell you just a couple quick stories to wrap up. This is a picture of my friend Jordan and Nikki. You see, they, uh, as students, <laughs> Jordan was the flakiest freshman I had ever met in my life. Um, he would come to crew things, Right after crew, go out and party, get drunk, 
come back to crew things, feel really guilty, kind of show up. He was just all over the place. Well, God does a work in Jordan's life, and Jordan decides he actually wants to go on summer mission at the end of his junior year. Turns out the girl he was dating, Nikki at the time, had also felt uh, led to go on summer mission that year. They swear that they, didn't, they weren't going together on purpose. It just happened that way. That's what they claim. But that summer was the very first time for them that either of them had ever had experience sharing about Jesus with other people. Slovenia is a place a lot like Estonia, where you have people who have literally never heard about Jesus before. And they saw students, Slovene students on that trip, come to know Jesus on that trip. It was also during that trip that they began to feel called to come back to Estonia, or to Slovenia rather. And so they graduated college, they got married six days later, they joined with crew and did an internship with crew with us in Ohio for one year just to get trained up. And then the following year, they moved over to Slovenia. They did one year over there, not knowing how long, you know, it would really be, but they go spend one year there. During that year, they felt like, we think we're not done, that God's calling us to stay. And now their family looks like this. You see, Jordan and Nikki, 10 years after they first went to Slovenia, they're still there. And they're raising their kids there. And they are having a ministry to Slovene students, trying to tell them about Jesus. And for Jordan and Nikki, they've said, we actually, our goal is not to be here forever. Our goal is actually to see Slovene students take over the ministry that we have. And then we'll go somewhere else. They've, they're choosing to live into a different story, aren't they? How they're making their decisions and what their values are, they're aligned to a different story. They're living as if Jesus is king. They're living as if this life is short, but eternity is long. They're living as if we want to bring blessing to the world by telling others about Christ. But it's not just them. I think about this guy, Justin Roy and his wife, Allie. Justin is a UCCS graduate. Some of you may have known him. But Justin graduated from UCCS just a few years ago. He came in as a freshman not knowing the Lord at all. He comes to Christ uh, during winter conference, really. He goes to Cruz Winter Conference, has a deep experience with the Lord there, feels deeply convicted of sin. He places his faith in Christ. And so Justin would speak at crew. You can go to the next one. This is him speaking at our crew gathering. You're like, I don't recognize that spot. Yeah, that's the old place. This is our new place. Uh, but Justin just fell in love with the Lord during college. Well, Justin didn't feel called to become a vocational minister. He went off to physical therapy school in Utah, which actually is a, is a, is a state that's full of people that don't know Jesus. And so Justin and Allie, they've decided we want to live as missionaries who work as physical therapists. We, we view ourselves as missionaries who happen to be in a different job. And so Justin is there reaching Mormons and talking to them about Christ. That's how he's serving. But let me show you a few other pictures real quick. You know some of these people. You know about Zach's story? You, you might know him as Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Zach. Zach comes in his freshman year. He doesn't know the Lord at all. He comes to Cruz Fall Retreat. He was having actually just suicidal thoughts. He was having difficulty in addiction with different drugs, alcoholism. He comes to Cruz Fall Retreat. He places his faith in Jesus. 
his life begins to radically change. He gets involved with crew throughout his years. He goes on a summer mission with crew and he decides, I, I, ha- I have to go. <laughs> you, you know about Jared? Anyone know Jared here? Yeah, you know Jared. <laughs> Jared was so apathetic about his faith. He was here at Woodman growing up. He didn't, I mean, if you've known Jared, you've kind of wondered, do you care about anything at all? Um, <laughs> but he actually does. You just can't see it on his face or hear it in his voice, but it's deep in his heart. But the Lord really began to capture his heart as he was involved with crew here. Jared made the hard choice, even though he doesn't, I think in the long term, he's not planning to do ministry, but he was like, but if I don't go to a place like Estonia, who's going to go? I can invest a year. And so he was willing to put distance in his dating relationship with a girl that he really cares about, who's not there with him, and say, I want to go. And then, of course, you know some of these other people, but you know this guy named Eric in the orange? I figured I would just let you hear from him and hear how the Lord called him over there. You have to listen real closely. Southern Colorado team asked if I would just share a short video with you about why uh, I wanted to go. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, So I spent the past few summers in Estonia on summer mission. And while I was there, I got to have lots of conversations with students, uh, hear about their lives, about their worldviews, and what they think about spiritual things. And one common theme uh, through those years is that I would often hear about students living life and not feeling like they had much purpose or hope. And obviously that's something that's heavy to hear and hard to hear. And as I was thinking about stenting, uh, one verse that would often come to mind in regards to that is from 1 Peter 1. And it shares about how through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been born again to a living hope, a living hope that is eternal, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's held by God. And I thought about in my life what a blessing it's been to be able to have a living hope. I'm not stuck in a temporary hope that will let me down, one that's of this world that will fade away, but I have a living hope in something that's eternal. And I thought about what would I want to share with Estonians as I go, and it's this, that they too can have that living hope, that they don't have to feel hopeless, uh, but rather that they can have this. Uh, And so for me, I found that really motivating as I was making that decision. Uh, So I just wanted to share that with you, and I hope to maybe see a few of you this summer in Estonia. Bye. I love that. Eric and those with him, they're, they're living into this story. Like, that was not an easy decision for any of them to make. It's a huge sacrifice for them. Like, they're not going to be with their families for Christmas. Like, all the holidays that you and I are looking forward to, they're saying, but it's worth it. They're living their lives and they're making their choices in light of this story. And so it's worth you asking, are you living into this story? I'm going to close just by asking this question. This is a rhetorical question, but how many of you have a hard time making decisions? Making decisions about what God is calling you to do. I wonder if one of the reasons that you struggle so much with determining what God is calling you to do in different situations is because you don't know what story you're living in or you're feeling the kind of the tug of living in different stories. 
But what if you really did choose to live as if God is your father, as if Jesus is your brother, that heaven is your home, that eternity is long, that people really will die not knowing God and go to hell? What if you really did live as if, if, if people don't hear about Jesus, if you won't go and tell them, then maybe no one else will? What if you lived as if what it said in the Abrahamic covenant, that you were blessed to be a blessing? I think if you really believed and chose to live into the true story, I think making decisions would come a lot easier to you. I think it would clarify for you the questions of who should you be dating and who should you marry? What job or career should you take? What should you do next summer? Should you go and take that internship or should you go on mission? Should you invest a year in Estonia or should you stay here in the Springs or go live somewhere else? Are you living into the true story? Because I think the more that you do, the more it clarifies what you're called to do. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your story is one of redemption where you want to redeem and save us, that you want to bless us. And God, I pray for every one of us. God, we, your people, we believe in you. We, don't, we want to live, God, according to the true story. We don't want to live into the false ones. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to desire and to believe and to even be willing to follow you when we don't know where we're going? In Jesus' name, amen.